0: Okay, so uh, we've got a review before we get cracking. Um, first things first, remember what we talked about. We talked about ridiculous love and a ridiculous trust. Um, Josh talked about how big God is, and yet he loves us. Mike ta- or Sam talked about um, that because of that ridiculous love, and because of his hugeness and his, and his desire to be close to us and our brokenness, he came and put skin on so that we could understand who he is and what he wanted from us. And then finally, um, Mike, Mike talked about that if, if we want to trust him as king, we simply confess and start listening. A never-ending pursuit to control our lives. God wants to be our superhero and take control for us. Okay? If this is all true, here's the cool part. If this is all true, and there is nothing we must do to gain his love. What we can do is respond to his relationship with basic relationship stuff. Conversation and hear his words and obey his wisdom. Okay? One, one of these, like, the, there's this really cool profound moment when, John, when Mike uh, spoke last week that just kind of hit me. Um, the res- there is no requirement here to, to love God. There's no requirement to do anything. All he wants is relationship with us. And all our response needs to be, the only requirement is say, yeah, I want relationship with you. But then, there's, so there's no requirement after that. But what we have is a desire to reciprocate, right? At that point, we have someone who's now loving us unconditionally, who, who always loved us unconditionally, but now we're accepting it. And now what do you do after that? Like, you can, you can absolutely 100% choose to just stay there if you want. But God is always calling you to greater things because he wants to have a relationship. He wants to grow. I have been married to my wife for almost 10 years now, and oh my goodness, has our relationship grown because we've both pursued it, right? As you enter into that relationship with God, now it's time to start pursuing that relationship because out of a desire to reciprocate that love, not out of a desire of some requirement, but out of a desire to reciprocate. So we sat down as a group of elders uh, last week, and we're like, oh, "Oh, we got we got to plan some more stuff to talk about, right?" And we all go, "Well, what are we going to talk about?" And it was clearly around the table, Book of John, Gospel of John, Gospel of John. So it's like, "Okay, why?" And we all looked at each other and we go, "I don't know." <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> so we like, "I don't know why." And so it's kind of up to me to put that in perspective, and I think this is the answer: is that now we're going to talk about how to reciprocate. Right. If you have a desire to, to show God back the love that he gave you, now we're going to talk about reciprocation. John is a great example of, that, of how to reciprocate his love. All right, so I'm, going to, I'm, I'm calling John Get the Word Out. Uh, the other guys can talk about how, uh, what they want to talk about in terms of it. But for me, the, book of, the Gospel of John is about getting the word out. And when I say word, I mean literally mean the word word, which is super weird, but we'll talk about that today. Um, s- repeat this after me, okay? It's up on, the, up on the board. Repeat this after me. As the rain and the snow, nice, fall to the earth and seep into the ground to produce grain for the grower and bread for the hungry So it is with my word. It goes out from my mouth, producing the type of fruit I wish to harvest. My word accomplishes all that I want them and need them to. My word prospers wherever I send it. That's Isaiah 55. So, we need to talk about the Gospel of John. Step one, who is John? All right, so there is a debate in academia based on who John is. I don't think there's any debate after what I've studied this week. In my mind, there's no debate. This is the disciple who Jesus loved. This is John the disciple, John the apostle. I personally, not to say that I'm an academic or have any, any, uh, um, uh, letters to back up my my personal thoughts on this, but I do not believe that John the Elder even touched the biblical world in this book. Okay, I think this was all John the, the disciple. If you compare this book to Revelation, the same person absolutely wrote it, and I'm I believe the disciple. And I'll share I'll share with you why a little later. Um, if you want to know about uh, either one of these, I'm going to post my slides so everybody can read them. If you want to know a little bit of my information I gathered on uh, John the disciple versus John the elder, John the elder was later. He was probably a disciple of John himself um, and/or and a disciple of Barnabas. Okay. Or I remember where I heard the Barnabas thing. But, um, so now that we know it's John the disciple, let's actually talk about. Why would he write a gospel? I mean, come on, dude. There's already three. It's it's 90 A.D. There's three three gospels. They've been in circulation for a few uh, for a few decades now. They've, they've been written. Everybody's been reading them. The whole uh, the whole Christian world is now uh, interacting with those three gospels. Um, why would John write one? It makes it doesn't make much logical sense, right? Um, does he not trust that everybody? Everybody else delivered, some, delivered enough words? Like, what's the deal? Um, most people assume that he's writing to fill in gaps. Now, I disagree with this, and I'll share with you why in a little bit. This is partially correct um, because he is filling in some gaps, but he, he's filling them in for a purpose and a people. Um, he, John is the pastor to the people in Asia, okay? Asia Minor specifically. How many know what, where Asia Minor is? Where's Asia Minor? 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 Turkey. Turkey, modern day Turkey, right? Um, so he is, the, guy, he is the, the, the pastor to the people in Turkey, which is right here. Okay, the, the tr- seven churches in Revelation. Um, everybody's pretty confident this, this is the, the churches that John traveled to, we think. We're pretty sure he lived in Ephesus, which is number one. Um, and he traveled to these seven churches, uh, preaching and teaching them throughout um, his ministry uh, and he did that for five, six, seven decades. We're not really sure exactly how long, but quite a long time in terms of human lifespan, the, the, the vast majority of his adult life. Um, what is the common thread of Jesus' teaching and that John adds to his, to his gospel? Here's the interesting thing. Okay? Um, I, I personally think that John is writing his gospel to Jews, now a lot of people think he's writing the go- writing his gospel to Greeks. I disagree with this. I I think that the world that you find John teaching in is a world of seven synagogues and home churches across this mail route in uh, the ancient uh, Asia Minor world, and uh, he is preaching. He is writing this book to the Jews that are teaching this host of new Gentile believers that just keeps growing and growing and blowing out the doors. And these Hebrew guys, they don't know how to talk to them. They don't understand how to share the word with those people who are coming in and don't know how to bring them along in the knowledge of the, of the, of the Bible. And remember that they've got, at this point, they, they've got a few letters from Paul. They've got three gospels. And, but the vast majority of what they study is the Old Testament or Tanakh. Okay, um, so John pulls all of these teachings that seemed to baffle he and his brothers at the time. Okay, as they're following Jesus around, they're, they, they are constantly like, what, I don't get it. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those Gospels, um, they don't include some of these things because they didn't get where they fit, right? John's been sitting in Asia for 50 years and he goes, oh my gosh, this is where it fits. And he goes, I'm going to write a gospel because it previously didn't fit the things that Jesus was saying back then when I was 13. But now, now that I see these people in Asia and I see these, these Roman Greek people and I see how hard my brothers and sisters are, are working to try to bridge the gap between their knowledge and the, and the, the Greeks' knowledge, I need to give everybody a, some guidance on how that works. So he writes this brilliant, brilliant book Um, if you want to talk about this conversation with me at a later date check out John 654 and let's go have some coffee because we could talk about that for like four hours Um, John 654 is 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 the poster child for this conversation okay but we're not gonna talk about John 654 today we're gonna talk about something else Um, step three so how did John write it Uh, by the way if you feel like you're drinking from the fire hose I'm sorry so much content to get through for you to get the main point at the end of this that I, I am going to be going extremely fast. So slow me down and ask me a question if you need if you need time to think. Okay. Um, step three. How do you write it? Okay. So John goes and he writes this lag. We're good. John goes, and he writes this book, okay? So um, uh, according to my argument, or according to what I, what, I, what I feel is fitting in my head, who's John writing this book to? You guys remember? Who's John writing the book to? The Jews, but what, what specifically are those Jews doing? They're teaching the Gentiles, right? So he's writing a book to Jews to teach Gentiles, so what's he have to do in order for it to have the impact he's hoping for? It's got, to, it's got to, in words, on a piece of paper, it's got to simultaneously teach the Jew and give the Jew something to ground the Greek in. So it's got to have culture and context on top of what that Jew already knows, and then build that knowledge together to give them something to share. So what John has to do is he has to write to two simultaneous cultures and engage in two simultaneous, or in my opinion, three simultaneous conversations in order for each of his images in his, in his book to have, imp- have the impact he's desiring, all right? Um, uh, so it starts with the written words. So he, he, if you read the written words, here's what it says. In the beginning was the word. So then he takes, so he takes this picture, right? What's the Jewish picture that he's delivering to the Jew? What's the picture with that phrase? In the beginning was the word. What's the picture? Genesis creation, right? So he starts with the creation narrative, okay? Then he goes to the Greek context, and he gives you, because he uses, some, he uses a, a Greek word here. What's the Greek word he uses for word? Logos or logos. Um, when, you read, when a Greek reads that word, they hear something specific. Okay? Um, when, a, when a Hebrew hears the word logos in Greek, and they hear that combined with in the beginning, their immediate thought is Torah, or Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible that they have so far. okay. Inserted into both of these languages, he inserts himself into two simultaneous conversations in the philosophical mind of both groups, exactly at the same time. He says, he talks into the Greek mythology, and he, t- or he either talks into Greek mythology or he talks into... Um, uh, Greco-Roman uh, philosophy. He then talks into the Hebrew philosophy, which is called madrash, or uh, textual uh, uh, textual uh, uh, interpretation, or he embeds a understanding that Jesus is the embodiment of the word of <laughs> the word word or Torah itself. Okay, this is a very difficult conversation to wrap your mind around. It took me three or four days, so I'm trying to teach you guys this conversation in 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, when you, talk about the Greek, when you talk about the Greek conversation, so he's inserting himself into the Greek conversation. Well, what is he doing? Here's the confusing part about the Greek conversation, and I'm gonna cap this quick. Number one, in the Greek world, the mythos, the story, is so broadly changing from God to God across region to region. So Caesar sets out the pantheon. He says, these are the gods that are acceptable. If you don't worship these, you're in trouble, okay? Um, And then there's other stuff in that world, but we're not gonna go into that today. Then there's the general story, where everybody goes, okay, there's the god Demeter. Demeter Demeter's the god of food, okay? Now the specific food that Demeter's in charge of, that's really specified from place to place in the Roman world, so Asia Minor is gonna have a different set of things that they worship Demeter for than the area of Rome or Italy, right? So there's the preferred regional story that's the important piece. So John reaches into the story in Asia Minor at that time and makes commentary on that throughout his Gospel, okay? Simultaneously, he takes that preferred regional story and and then also adds Torah and Midrash to that to make this crazy package And this is for every single image in John. So every time he changes images, he does this again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Uh, Is there any wonder why he's 60 or 70 when he writes this? (laughs) This probably took the guy quite a long time. And I'm pretty sure he had some help, Uh, this guy. Uh, So next we want to talk about Midrash and why that's so important, okay? How Jews understand the philosophical argument is this: First, you understand Torah. Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible. Okay, Um, they have that. That is so ingrained in their culture, in their purpose, in their in their humanity. It is what they live and breathe. In fact, um, they talk talk about Torah in terms of eating it, in terms of breathing it in terms of it is a, becomes a part of you as you study it, okay? Um, there is so much here um, as to how in crazy in-depth they get. Um, they, have, they go to school and all they learn, they learn their ABCs and 1, two threes via the Bible. So everything, every number is related to a Bible story. Every letter is related to a Bible story. Everything that they learn is living and breathing text. So Torah is the first thing that they study. The next thing they study is the Nevaim, which is, um, and then I need to go back to my things, which is the prophets, all of the prophets that you see in the text, okay? And uh, followed by that, the Ketuvim, and then over, this overarching umbrella is the Midrash over all three. And it's, it, the Midrash is this uh, uh, contextual narrative of the rabbis. They're talking back and forth and discussing together, and they go, oh, this is an idea, right? And every now and then, they'll put a book together, and they'll call it Canon, but in general, it's this ongoing story. In fact, today, Orthodox Jews consider the words of Jesus Midrash, okay? So it's, it's, it's commentary, okay? Now, you cannot interpret Torah, uh, you cannot interpret uh, Nevi'im without, without Torah. You cannot inter- interpret Torah and nevaim without Ketuvim. And you cannot interpret Midrash without all three, okay? So in other words, if you don't have the lowest level Torah down super well, in fact, it is very, very likely that by the time they exited their time with Jesus, all of the uh, disciples had the entire Torah memorized, possibly the Nevi'im and Ketuvim memorized all the way through, meaning they could recite it from front to back. Okay, Um, uh, Yeah, an insane devotion to the text. Okay? Um tons of contextual information, tons of contextual ma- information in the Madrash. It gives us so much more understanding of the ancient understandings. And so some of the stuff that John is going to be entering into in, t- in telling the stories that uh, Jesus uh, told them, that have a Greek context, some of those are in, are in these insane, mol- multi-thousands- of- years debates from the rabbis. It's insane. Um, OK. so How is this going to connect to the different people? Here's the interesting thing. Um, I want, from here on out, I want to study with you, I want to study John 1.1, just this verse. Three sentences, in the beginning was the word, the word was with with God, and the word was God, okay? Three sentences, uh, John enters into both of these simultaneous debates And uh, has an amazing, and then then here's the crazy thing. John's going to enter these debates, and I'll show you how he enters into them. But then at the end, he says one word, one word, and it flips both contexts on their head. It's crazy. All right. Um, So the Greek philosophy of Logos. Philo in 25 BC, 25 to 50 years before Christ, Philo says this, the incorporeal world then was already complete, having its seat in the divine reason, the logos. And the world per- uh, perceptible by the external senses was made model of, of the logos. Okay? In the beginning, God was by himself. He transformed the whole substance through air into water. And just as in an animal genera- generation, the seed has moist vehicle. So in cosmic moisture, God, who is, who is the uh, seminal reason, Logos, of the universe remains behind in the moisture. So in the Greek mind, the Greek philosophers from 50 years earlier were saying, before Jesus even shows up, they're saying these things. They're saying the word, or word, logos, the word that we see there in the text, is the thing that was in the beginning. So when when John says, in the beginning was the word, the Greeks are like, yeah, man, totally. Philo, Diogenes, yeah. In the beginning was the word, I'm down. Okay? So the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew sees the word Logos and sing, says Torah or Tanakh, okay? They so say Torah. Um, to, there's always been word to, to the Jew. Torah has been there from the beginning. The uh, Midrashic sh- sages from three, four hundred years prior to Jesus showing up on the, uh, on the earth, They're all saying Torah existed. Torah was what God used to create the world. He used Torah. He used the word to create the world. So John uses this word. He says says, logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And okay, what's what's the Greek saying at this point? They're like, yeah, man. In the beginning was the Logos, yeah! And the Hebrews, like, yes, in the beginning was, the lo- was Torah. Torah is correct. That is correct, sir. You are correct. And then John drops this massive bomb. He goes, He was with God in the beginning. And they all go, What? <laughs> no, 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 John, you don't understand. Logos is a concept. Torah is a written word. And no, no, no. John goes, listen, Jesus is that concept. Jesus is that word. He is the embodiment of Torah. He is the physical representation of Logos. He is. He is. One word, one word, and he shocks the entire culture of Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Words. Words are good. One word. This guy's so brilliant. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, so this book provides Roman believers with an understanding and a bridge to their Hebrew brothers who are talking about these things, right? Because you can imagine, right? They come into this church and like, oh, yeah, everybody loves me. And, and, and the Hebrews are like, yeah, Jesus loves you. Come on in. Right? And then they, the Hebrews are like over here talking about all these ridiculously heady things. And, there's, and they're like, and the Greeks are over here like, hey, can you guys tell me about that? And they're like, eh, de, eh, me, me. but there's no context. There's no context. The Hebrews are like trying to talk to these. There's no context. And then they go, they get this word from John. They go, oh. the Greek guys go, hey, hey, do you guys know about Logos? And the Hebrews are like, you guys know about Torah, and then they come together and they're like, whoa, this guy's smart, right? Like, they, you can imagine the geeky out. I and mean, look at me, I'm geeking out. They were geeking out, I'm sure. Okay, um, so now I want to move. So you guys get it. Three sentences followed by one word completely upends and bridges the gap, and we've only just begun the book. Okay. Um so here's the question. okay, Here's the question. Um, going back to step one, who was John? Okay? If you read the story uh, from all four um, apostles, you read the story of Jesus, you find John being very quiet, being very, very compassionate, and I'm pretty sure this this kid was. 13, 14, 15, sitting there, soaking in every single moment and just absorbing every word, just hanging on every word. And I'm pretty sure the guess is that he probably was the youngest of all 12. Um, So I imagine this 30-year-old man walking along with this 13-year-old, just sucked to his hip, like just nonstop. Right? And he goes, and he's talking to everybody, and John's just always just right there. Okay? I think this kid absorbed every moment. I think he was a genius, and I think, I think he was memorizing and just, ugh, just getting all those words in there, and then he's making these connections, right? And then Peter and, Peter and James are having a discussion, and now John will drop a knowledge bomb on him. And I think this is exactly the kind of person you need to unite these two communities. Now, what does this mean for us? We're not all brilliant. I'm dumb as a box of rocks sometimes when it comes to reading the text. Like I just bleh, feel like I'm hitting my head against a brick wall. But um, here's the question: We started the year, or we started the yeah, we started the year with understanding that God loves us. There's no condition, and now we want to reciprocate. Okay. I want to reciprocate his love and give back to him. How do we do that? How do we, how do we do, do that? You listen to somebody, you study them as a person and you you understand what they are. If Jesus is the living embodiment of Torah and logos, then that means his words and that means all the words that precede him and all the words that come after him in that that biblical narrative and that biblical story every single word is the way that we show him our love by hanging and absorbing and discussing just like John was trying to create between the Greeks and the Jews discussing collaborating interacting with the, with the narrative. Do I want, and here's, here's the crazy part. Asia Minor exploded with the word of God. It exploded. And you know what? John's trying to convey this, this deeper meaning he's trying to convey. Speak the words that are in you. If you have his words in you, and you speak, it, speak them as the rain, and you speak those words, whatever the context, whatever the problem, whatever the issue, whatever the, the, the care or the worry that your friends or you or others bring to you, if you speak your words, they can come back and they can go back and be void. But if you speak his words, if his words come out of you. And his words speak into that pain and that sorrow. Or his words speak into that confusion and frustration. Or his words seek into that lack of love, that lack of understanding, and that lack of believing. If you speak his words, his words produce fruit. Our words produce nada. His words are like water on the field. They produce grain for the grower and see, grain for the grower and bread for the eater. And they never come back void. They always accomplish the purpose he wants. So if you're wondering, God, what's your will, what's the answer to that? What's the answer to what's God's will? Speak the Bible into that situation. If you don't know what to speak, start expressing your love for him more through learning his words. And don't do it by yourself. Do it together. Okay? The word is power. Not because of us, but because of him. It does not return in void. Make sense? If you or anyone that you know is struggling to capture this concept and it is like smoke to them and they open up the Bible and they just want to hit their head against the table over and over and over again because it seems so dry, let me know. (laughs) And I will work with them and with you and we will find a way to study and learn and, and get the words in you. all right? Um, I have, in the past had a group of people that uh, studied the word together, and I, I gave a lot of uh, commentary and, 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 and thought. Um, and it goes it follows my friend Marty's uh, A podcast, which is the biblical narrative, he's explaining it one week at a time, and it's very, very good. Um, But there's other information that we can discuss and talk. There's a there's a set of ideas, and that set is first, first just approach it, Um, and I would say listen. Okay, let me go back a slide because it's going to help me. Start listening. Okay, just start listening. Podcasts, if podcasts are not something you like. Flip it on for 15 minutes in the car. If you have an iPhone, ESV app, all you have to do is hit play, and it'll play it. Um, If you have an Android, there's multiple apps that are just straight audio Bibles, totally free, annoying ad on the top, but you're not looking at it anyway. Okay, Um, Just listen to it. That's all. Just get it in you. Okay, Um, Learn it together. Learn it in terms of books, like we're going to be talking about. And then finally, if you are brave, start memorizing. That's the hard one. Okay, hard one for me, okay? If you do this, the word will help you engage in culture, right? John is steeped in culture and he's steeped in word and that is the only way he's able to do this. He is not separated from the culture of this world. He has not segregated himself off. He is involved, his hands are dirty, he is involved with what people are doing. He is digging in the dirt with them. But he also knows the text and he is able to teach, to speak into culture and to speak text into culture. You want to change the world. You want to bring your friends to Christ. You want people to experience the love, freedom, and joy. Reciprocate God's love through studying the word. All right. The worship team will come up. I will pray.